It is a blessing to be back in Calgary after a couple of weeks away with family in Dallas, Texas. Our oldest son, Adam, and our younger son, Ryan, both their wives and our grandson, Easton, was there as well. We had a wonderful time with them. Robin and I returned late on Friday afternoon. You know, in Dallas, it wasn't particularly warm. Uh, We had one day where it was about uh, zero, and the boys and I went out and did some outside activities, and, you know, we could see our breath and things like that, so it was a little bit cool. And, uh, but, you know, it's still not anything like it is today here. And uh, so then we, we flew, we had driven down to Great Falls and flown out of there and we're flying back into Great Falls and then driving up. And so we flew back into Great Falls and, you know, it wasn't too bad. I walked outside and I thought, oh, this isn't bad. We drove home and I kid you not, about a mile, and now I got to start talking in kilometers again, 1.6 kilometers before I got to the border, we were watching the temperature on, in, inside the car, and it, it was about three degrees all the way from Great Falls to Shelby, okay? We crossed she- through Shelby, we're headed you know, up the hills, headed for Sweetgrass, and the temperature starts to drop. Boom, 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 boom. By the time we get to Sweetgrass, it was minus 11. And I thought, how can we go? You know, it's obviously a thing with the border. Like, you cross the border, and the temperature drops considerably. We get to Lethbridge, and we're at a blizzard, and it was a blizzard from Lethbridge, basically, to Calgary. It was amazing. At one point, uh, like, obviously, we're headed uh, north, but on the southbound traffic, they had completely blocked it off because the semi had, had uh, jackknifed and was completely blocking off the southbound lanes, and there was uh, kilometers of traffic that was there, uh, backed up. They couldn't go anywhere. And it's just, uh, you know, we looked at each other and said, welcome home. Isn't this great? And then we got here. You know, you can wake up this morning. It's minus 25. It just feels like home. <laughs> We really did have a great time with our family. It was wonderful, uh, a real, a real blessing. Really enjoyed our grandson. Uh, you know, he's the perfect proof of the power of genetics. Because, like his grandfather, and I didn't teach him this. Like he lives two thousand miles away, and so I didn't teach him this. But like his grandfather, he loves to sing and he loves to make up songs about anything. And I've always done this. You know, like when I'm driving along in the car. You know, Megan and I, if it's just Meg, I'm taking her to school or something years ago, then, you know, we would drive along and I'd say, you know, I'm singing, and I'd say, the houses are green and the roofs are blue and the sky is purple too. I'm just, you know, just making up songs all the time. And, and Easton does the same thing. He just makes up songs. So he's, he's coloring or something, he's singing, making up songs. And then he started singing church songs. And I thought, oh, this is so cool. My grandson is singing church songs, so I'm going to go over and join him in songs. So I go over, you know, it's like put my arm around him. I'm having this grandfather-grandson kind of moment. He's singing. I start to sing, and he, t- he stops singing. He looks at me, and he goes, Pappas, I'm singing. You don't sing. <laughs> totally ruined the moment, Okay. But we just we absolutely had a, a wonderful time uh, with them for sure. I need to make a point, by the way, of saying that while I was gone, I know that I'm not indispensable here. And, and again, that's something else that's proved because every time I, I go away, wonderful things happen. And so I heard about the wonderful service on the 21st when there was some special singing. Uh, I, I've been looking forward to that. I'm, I, I'm just so glad that we could uh, do something like that. That's absolutely wonderful uh, that we had that kind of special singing on the 21st. I heard that it went very well. And I, I know that Dustin preached, and then Kevin preached, and uh, you know there are people like Rebecca who are organizing the the list of the servers, and 
uh, keeping track of all those who are on the praise team. It just takes, uh, you know, a number of different people who have to do things in order to make things go off in any way smoothly. And so I'm just so grateful that we have wonderful people who are so talented and so committed and servants and who wonder, do all of that work uh, when those of us who are on the staff aren't here, and it was just uh, fantastic to know that all that was being taken care of while I was gone. Another thing that, that uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about, the day before I left, I left on Friday, which was the 20th, no, left on Saturday the 20th. On the 19th, we had, uh, everybody had given money, and we had seven families that we were supporting with Christmas hampers this year. And when we do Christmas hampers, we don't just give them a turkey and, you know, and say thank you, you know, or Merry Christmas. We, like, we really do a lot for these families. And so we were taking gifts and a big meal and giving them extra food and extra uh, cards that they could buy more food with. And it was really a, a fun experience. And so Hope and Mark Desi and I uh, went out on that Friday morning and delivered the hampers to people. And it was absolutely a wonderful experience, seeing the joy on their faces and the, and the genuine need that was there. Uh, the one that, that will stand out in my mind is one that came, came a little bit later in the day, and uh, we had a chance to meet a lady for lunch. Uh, it was on her lunch break. That was the only time she could get off. She had just gotten a job after having been off for quite some time, a single mother, and we were able to go into her home and give her things. And as we left, she had big tears in her eyes, and she was hugging us and telling us how much she appreciated uh, what we did. And it was just a wonderful feeling of just like knowing that you'd really done something wonderful uh, for somebody. And then I, later on, as I was leaving the parking lot here, driving out of the parking lot, just nosing my car out toward the toward the street, she drove by uh, on her way to work. And and you could tell she was looking. Like she was looking at, at me. She was looking at the church. And when she saw me, she gave me a big wave. And it was just a, you know, just a wonderful experience of feeling like we'd really made a, a connection with this lady. So, Mark, thanks for helping uh, deliver hampers. It, it was great, a wonderful experience. Thanks to those who, who gave and those who went shopping. All of that was wonderful, and I really, really appreciate it. Gary and others have already mentioned that it's New Year. What is the number one resolution, folks, that you are all going to break as you start New Year's? You make this resolution. What is the number one resolution you're all going to do? You're all going to lose weight, okay? I cannot wait to see it. I'm just look. I'm going to be every Sunday. I'm going to be looking. I wonder if I wonder if he's lost weight. <laughs> My guess is that that's the one that you're going to break too. And you know we need to be reflective about such things. Most people don't keep their resolutions, and one must be a, a bit thoughtful about such things. Studies have shown that wives who carry a little extra weight actually live considerably longer than their husbands who choose to mention it. (laughs) So make your resolutions and your comments carefully as you start the new year. Some of you are resolving to lose weight. Others are resolving to keep your mouth shut. And you need need to. Okay? The last time that we had a chance to look at the book of Hebrews, believe it or not, was November 30th. That was the last time that we took a a portion of scripture from our our yearly theme and looked at that. And we're going to look at that this morning. I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9 today. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9. And as uh, Miles mentioned, we're going to be talking a bit about blood. And it's really, to me, it's fascinating what this passage does with the subject of the sacrifice of Jesus and his blood. You know, we often hear talked about at the Lord's Supper, and this makes total sense that we would, 
the discussion about how when blood is sacrificed, forgiveness comes. Scripture talks about that. And there are statements in Scripture about how the life is in the blood. And life is in the blood, and when blood is sacrificed, life actually comes. And there's something about that that's certainly true. First of all, we're going to start at the very end here and just read the last verse, and then I'm going to go back up to the start. And I'm going to do something a little bit different with this uh, than just the notion of blood being sacrificed for life. Look at verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's an interesting line. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so we know that in order for us to receive forgiveness of sin, there needs to be a sacrifice of blood that's made. And that was very clear in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was uh, adamant about the necessity of animals being killed and blood being shed, sacrifices being made in order for forgiveness to take place. God forgave on the basis of blood being shed. And so every year, we know, the high priest would go into the... the uh, Holiest of holies, he would make a sacrifice there and forgiveness would come. Well, what I'm afraid that we do with that, and I would say that this is a mistake, what we do with that is in focusing on the necessity of blood being shed, the regulation, if you will, of blood being shed in order for forgiveness to come, we end up missing what I think is maybe even a more important aspect of the notion of the blood of Jesus being shed. And let me show you what I mean. Look first at verse 1. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here at the uh, beginning of chapter 9, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 6. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. And so there are regulations set up. There's, even, there's a tabernacle or a temple set up. And all of this is organized so that forgiveness can come to the people, so they can have a relationship with God. There can be genuine worship take place according to God's will for humankind. So far, so good. Now look at verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that had been committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. In other words, the sacrifice has to be repeated every year because for some reason it's not working. Like it's not... The sacrifice that's taking place is not allowing forgiveness to take place in some kind of perpetual, everlasting, eternal way. And so it has to be continued to be repeated. And so by by this, the Holy Spirit is indicating there's something wrong here, that this has to be repeated. Verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were, and watch this line, were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Now that's interesting. This states fairly clearly that there is a problem with the old covenant. Now the problem is clearly not that there was no bloodshed. There was bloodshed, and if blood is necessary for forgiveness, 
In some sense, it should be adequate because blood is being shed. But there's a problem. This specifically says that the conscience is not clear. Let me read verses 9 and 10 again. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. So forgiveness is actually in some sense taking place. A sacrifice is made in the holiest of holies. This wasn't just for show. Something was going on here. Forgiveness was taking place. But they had to repeat it every year because the consciences of the people were not adequately cleansed. In other words, their hearts, their lives, their inner selves were not being transformed. There was an external thing going on when it comes to forgiveness, but the internal aspect of what was happening in them wasn't really taking place. This is interesting. It's interesting that we were left in a position that wasn't as beneficial as we want it to be. Now let me go another direction for a moment. Every one of you has been at some point in your life hurt. Hurt by somebody else. And I'm not talking about we forgot your birthday. Okay? I'm talking about genuine hurt. Somebody did something to you that really hurt. And the biggest problem was that you know that the person who hurt you loves you or says that they do. And you love him or her. And it could be a, a parent, it could be a spouse, it could be a friend, it could be a child. All of us, at some point in our lives, have experienced genuine hurt. We know what that feels like. So much so that if I ask you right now to just think of an incident or a time or a person that has hurt you deeply, and you think about the feelings that went along with you hurting in that way. Tell me what that felt like. Give me a word. What, what did you feel? Like there's no reason for us to be bashful about the fact that we all have been hurt in some way and that we felt something deeply when we were hurt because we've all had this experience. You're not going to say, oh, I hurt in this way and everybody's going to go, oh, really, you hurt? Of course not because we all have experienced that. So give me some words about what it means to experience at a deep level Hurt from somebody else. Mark? Devastated. What's that? Oh, yeah. Okay. What else? Shout it out loud. Hurt? Yeah, it hurts, doesn't it, Ben? Absolutely. You don't, you don't like being hurt by somebody who's a friend, do you? No, it's not fun. Did someone say afraid? Oh, yeah. Indeed. Sad. Sad. Yeah, disappointment. We all know what that's like. There isn't anybody in the room who hasn't experienced something like that. Where you were crushed. 
Now, it goes the other way too. Sometimes you're the one who hurts another. All of you have been hurt by somebody. It wasn't just one person. And so all of us also have gone through the experience of hurting other people and hurting them deeply, saying something that, that was absolutely cruel and crushing. And, and maybe even as you said those words, you thought to yourself, oh, I wish I could pull those words back. You saw the look on their face and you knew what it did to them. And then after those kinds of words or that action was done that really did destroy somebody, devastate somebody, you know then what it's like to try and rebuild that relationship. You know how hard it is to try and put yourself back together with that person for them to forgive you or for you to forgive them and for relationship to be restored. This is not an easy thing. We're talking about something profound. And most of us, if you've lived very long, you've had some kind of experience like this that kind of rocked your world where somebody hurt you deeply or you hurt somebody deeply and now that relationship needs to be restored. And if that's the case, then you know how fulfilling it is when those relationships are restored. In fact, I would say it's of such deep feelings that we find the real grist of life where real life is experienced and real life is not just laughter real life is not just happy times good times big smiles real life sometimes includes incredible pain and sorrow forgiveness is needed the rebuilding of relationships is needed and it's in the context of these parts of life too when we know that we have really lived And there's something immensely fulfilling. And you know this is true. If you've had this experience, you know what I'm talking about. There is something immensely fulfilling in the overcoming of the deepest kinds of hurt and pain. Something that cannot be experienced when everything is good and peace-filled and when you have no hurts. Only in the midst of hurt can we experience, I think, the fullness of of life when that hurt is somehow taken away. Well, that's interesting. Because this passage says that the consciences of human beings were not fixed by the sacrifices that went on. In other words, the relationship between a God who loves us more than anybody loves us A God who created us and desires nothing more than having relationship with us. The text says that that relationship and our consciences about that relationship could not be restored by the Old Testament law. Instead, something else had to be done. And it wasn't just a case of blood has to be shed in order for there to be forgiveness because there's life in the blood. That wasn't the only issue here. The issue is real broken relationship between ourselves and God. How is that kind of relationship going to be mended? And the beauty of it is that God loved us so much that he chooses 
to mend the relationship for us and with us through his son. And so verse 11 says, When Christ came as high priest, the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. Having obtained eternal redemption, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. But notice it says outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? And what's the point? The point is that something had to happen on the inside. Our consciences had to be cleansed. Something that would allow our heart, a cleansed heart, a clean heart, a relation-filled heart, was now able to be in relationship with God and His heart. But it couldn't happen through the sacrifices of bulls and goats. And the reason why, it's not just the life was in the blood, it's that Jesus, His heart was in the blood. Who God is was in inside of Christ as a person, as he sheds his blood and gives up his life on the cross, something happens between God's heart and our hearts. And so the problem is not that forgiveness didn't come. The problem is that there was still a barrier. God accepted the blood sacrifices. But now the inner life of the worshiper the inner perception of the worshiper, the inner voice of the worshiper, who sees in Christ the ultimate sacrifice, has a chance to be joined together with God in a way that they can never be joined with Him to, before when there was no God who had reached out specifically through the person of Jesus to give His own life and His own blood that we might live. And so now the hearts of sinners are completely altered the way they could never have been altered before. It was Christ's own blood, an intensely personal experience by Jesus. You remember what it's like for Jesus in the garden? Let this cup pass from me. I don't want my blood to be shed. I don't want my life to have to be given up. But Father, not my will, but yours be done. Why does he say that? Like, why is it that Jesus doesn't say at that point, this is too much? My will, in this case, not your will. You are asking too much, and I will not do this. Why does he not do that? No doubt, because of the respect he has for his Father. But you think he doesn't know what the ramifications of his death are for us? Why does he do this? Because just like his father, he ultimately wants to be reconciled to us. He wants relationship with us. And when he says, your will be done, there's a sense in which he says, your will be done 
that they might live. That they might have relationship with us. And so your will be done. And yes, my blood can be shed for that purpose. And so it's his own blood shed on the cross. Through it, eternal forgiveness comes only in that means. It's cooperation with God's inward, eternal spirit and with the Son that the blood of Christ is shed and our consciences are finally cleansed. And yes, there's special power in His blood, but more than anything, there's special connection there. Because any God who would give His Son to live or to die for us so that we can live has made a sacrifice, the shedding of His blood, that has to do something to me. That's what changes me. That's why I'm different. You know, you have no other reason, greater, grander, to live differently and better in 2015 than the fact that Jesus Christ gave His own life, His own blood shed for you. And in the process says, I want you now to live for me. And so there's something that happens here between ourselves and God as the Father, the Blessed Son, and the Holy Spirit participate in a sacrifice that is intended to completely heal the hurt between ourselves and God that is caused by our own sin. Now just think about this. A moment ago I asked you, do you you know what it feels like to be hurt by someone? God knows that feeling. God knows what it's like to create create us and love us and have us hurt Him in return. God knows what it's like to experience the pain of our sin and what our sin does to him, the grief that it causes us. And so our sin is not something external that can be remedied and forgiven by merely external regulations. A bull can't be sacrificed and fix the deep heart level, spirit level, conscious level problem between ourselves and God. Instead, a heart transaction was needed. A heart experience was needed. A heart experience that God himself could experience. So that our hearts could be changed and our guilt overcome. God, our creator, our father, the one who loves us more than anyone else, has been deeply hurt by our sin. We hurt him. We still do when we sin. We hurt others. Even when it seems like at times we've gotten away with something. This heart problem, this corrupted heart problem, couldn't be fixed by an external sacrifice. Something had to happen within God's own inner experience. His own blood had to be shed. He had to be hurt. He had to bear in his own heart the weight of the pain of his relationship with us. So that our consciences, that inner part of ourselves that relates to God 
and his will for our lives could find the hurt between ourselves and God healed. And you know what that's like. You know not only the pain of being hurt, but you know what it takes for you to try and forgive somebody when they've hurt you. And God did that. And he did it through his son. He did it with the shedding of his son's blood. And so in the same way that you feel things deeply when you're hurt, you feel things deeply when you hurt someone else. We know that God, in whose likeness we were made, feels those things too. Do you remember what it took for you to forgive? It took that kind of sacrifice for him. And he did it through his son and his blood. And if you're not amazed by that, you should be. It's amazing the love that God has for us. The last thing I want you to do here is I want you to look at the very end of verse 14. He talks about what Christ has done, and then he says at the very end, so that we may serve the living God. The NIV, if you happen to be looking at NIV, it actually puts an exclamation point there at the end of verse 14. No doubt because of the beauty and the significance of this thought. Both the result and purpose of the sacrifice of Christ is that we might serve the one with whom we're in love. And who loves us. And so there's a call here in his sacrificial death. And it's to live differently. It's to love differently. It's to serve differently. Because we are those who've received from him this ultimate sacrifice of reconciliation in relationship. There is life in the blood. There is something that happens when the blood is shed. And what happens is that the heart of God is pierced for us. And I just pray that our hearts are likewise pierced and that we can end up loving Him and accepting His love. It's a great way to begin a new year recognizing the call on us to serve this one who loves us that much. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that that the sacrifices that went before were absolutely inadequate. And we recognize that the sacrifice of Christ is totally adequate. And Father, we can clearly see that so much more went on than the simple shedding of blood. It was your son's blood. It was an immensely personal experience for Jesus to give himself on our behalf. And the union of our hearts with yours through his sacrificial death we, we count as our greatest gift from you.
and we praise you for it. Help us, God, always to recognize the strength and the unity of the relationship that we have with you that has been grounded in the blood of Jesus. And therefore, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.